Well, just about four years ago to the day, January 4th, 2015, a handful of people and a handful of families from Ormond Beach, about 30, 40 minutes away to the north, came over here and we planted this church, Grace Life Church, in the Deltona High School Auditorium. And logistically, honestly, we didn't really know what we were doing. We, we came from a church that was big, um, had a lot of pastors, had a lot of paid staff, but we had never church planted before. Everything had, you know, kind of been done for us. And so logistically, we were thrown into the deep end of the pool. Uh, it wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't cheap. <laughs> uh, but what we did have was we had courage, we had faith, and we had a group of some of the most Jesus-loving, sacrificial, faithful, and generous people I've ever met before. And so God planted this church deep, and we began to do outreaches around the city. Uh, we wanted to connect with the community here. So we did outreaches. We launched community groups. We called them home groups back then. Um, we sent a missionary, Patty Parks, to Ireland. We partnered with Melissa Affalter and started a biblical counseling ministry called Beholding and Becoming. Um, we, did, we did a lot of things. And we even planted another church in Ormond Beach back in uh, January of this year. Sent Jeff Eckert over there, sent a handful of faithful families over there. And so we have seen the Lord impact a lot of people through this church. And it was because we all felt this compelling call from God to come over here because there's a great need. Did you know that just in southwest Volusia County and northern Seminole County, there are almost half a million people represented here? Did you guys know that? That's a lot of people. And I know there's churches everywhere, but there could never be enough churches to reach all the people that God wants to reach. I believe then and I still believe now God has many people in these cities that he wants to reach. And his church is plan A. There's no plan B. He's always going to use imperfect people and imperfect churches like us to reach outsiders because that's the only people he has. He doesn't have anybody else to use. Amen? And so we're grateful that he chose to use us. And statistics tell us that new church plants reach more people than traditional established churches. And here's why that statistic is still a reality. Here's why. Because new church plants are more, more focused on outsiders. It's the, in their DNA. It's, we're here to evangelize. We're here to reach the outsiders. We're here to reach people that are strangers to God's grace. It doesn't take very long at all for a church to get like an infected toenail. Ingrown. And we get really safe. We get really comfortable. And we forget why we exist. So we came over here and we prayed and we preached and we planted and we even brought a motto with us and we say it all the time. What's the motto of Grace Life Church? The insiders who exist for the outsiders, right? That is why we're here. And listen guys, seriously, anything else we can do better in heaven. We can fellowship better in heaven and we will. We can pray better in heaven and I'm sure we will. We can worship better in heaven and study the Bible better in heaven. But there's one thing we cannot do in heaven, and that is reach outsiders. When we're in heaven, when Jesus returns, and the world ends, or we die, whichever comes first, evangelism stops. It's over, right? We can only do that while we're here. And that's why Jesus Christ left us, the church, here, is to reach outsiders with the hope of the gospel. So... God's not finished reaching outsiders, and so we're not finished either. We want Him to continually use this church to do that. We're just getting started. And so what we're celebrating today is that vision, that vision and that mission. Those haven't changed. 
In fact, they're they're more clear, at least to me as a leader for this church, than they ever have been. Uh, God has left us here with a mission, with a message, and with a mission field, and He wants to use us to reach them. So, here's the problem: people people forget so often that God actually cares about outsiders. We do. It, it's not in our DNA. We disbelieve the gospel. We forget that God draws near sinners. That's a scandalous message. Even to say it, I used to bristle as a new believer to even say that. God loves sinners. He loves to redeem them. He gets glory every time. He transforms a child of darkness into a child of the light of the kingdom of Christ. He loves to do that. And listen, God can tell us that he loves sinners. God can tell us that he is for the outsiders. But God knows us. We're visual learners, aren't we? By the way, that's why I usually use PowerPoint in the auditorium, because we're visual learners. God knows that. He understands that. So you know what God does? He tells us that he loves sinners um, over and over, but God demonstrates it. Even before the cross, that's the greatest demonstration, of course, of God's love for sinners. But God demonstrates it even before then in the Old Testament. There's like little anecdotal, anecdotal stories all throughout the Old Testament showing us God reach outside of Israel and completely transform an outsider into an insider. And it's really astonishing when he does that. And we're going to talk today about a place that he did that and a person that he did that to. This is a city, and the city's name was Jericho. How many people remember Jericho? Right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. He really didn't. God did. God fought the whole battle for them and won it. Um, but Jericho, it's easy to forget, it was a stunningly wicked city. Okay? It was fortified. It was a nasty place. God had given them centuries to repent of their sins, and they never did. And Jericho happened to be right smack dab uh, on the edge of the promised land that God had pledged to his children. And God gave them centuries to repent, and they didn't. And so it's time for Israel to possess that land and make it their own. God's going to make good on his promise. He's sending Israel <clears throat> to invade the land of Canaan, <clears throat> excuse me, where Jericho is. And so it's interesting, if you look in Genesis chapter 15, God actually told Abraham, he said, look, when the fourth generation comes, and when the sin and the iniquity of the Amalekites is complete, then I'll make good on my promise. So what does that tell us about God? He is extremely patient and long-suffering. This story about God invading Jericho, it's very offensive to a lot of people. Did you guys know that? If you're a Christian and you talk to unbelievers and they have problems with Christianity in the Bible, I guarantee you talk to them long enough, this story is going to come up. You know what they're going to say? They're going to say, yeah, I know all about your God, God of the Old Testament. He's a bloodthirsty bully. He, he, he commits genocide he wipes out entire nations and cities just because he thinks he has the authority to do that and they'll they'll quote from this story and say that this story proves that god is a monster in fact let me read you a quote i'm going to have somebody read this story to you in a minute um of, of jericho from joshua but let me read a quote to you from richard dawkins he wrote a book called the god delusion anybody know who that is this guy's super intelligent, but he's an unbeliever. I don't even know if I can pronounce all these words, but I'm going to try. This is what he said about the God of the Old Testament in his book. Check this out. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He said fiction. It's actually nonfiction, Richard, but we'll keep going here. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. 
a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, <clears throat> self-centered, <laughs> sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. There. Woo! It's hard for Redneck to get all, or excuse me, for Arkansan to get all those words out. That's what Richard Dawkins thinks about the God of the Old Testament, and he would cite a story like Jericho to prove it. But listen, guys, Jericho, the story of Jericho is there to show God is just, and that all sinners will face God in judgment if they don't trust in Christ. But that's not the only reason that story is there. That story is there to prove a point that people forget, that the God of the Old Testament is just as merciful, gracious, loving, and forgiving as the God of the New Testament. Because doesn't the Bible say Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So in this story, it's tucked away, you'll miss it if you're not careful, a story of the redemption of an outsider. So Moses died, Joshua takes over leadership, and God tells Joshua, I want you to go into Jericho, lead Israel in there, and devote the entire city to destruction. I mean, those are tall orders, aren't they? And he gives, uh, Joshua does something that every military commander does. He sends a reconnaissance team in there to spy out the city. He sends two spies to Jericho to get the layout of the city so that he can give a tactical instructions to his people, right? And so I'm going to ask Bree Patterson. She's going to read this story for us this morning. And it's a little bit lengthy, but I want you guys to listen really closely because there's some real important lessons in this story. I promise you I'm not going to preach very long this morning. we got some hot dogs to eat, some hamburgers and dessert. We've got a bounce house to enjoy, some games to play. But we want to remember in our celebration why we're here. We are the insiders for the outsiders. That's our mission. That's our heart. That's always been God's heart, even back in the Old Testament. So, Bree? This is from Joshua 2, verses um, 2 through 15, or 1 through 15. And they went and came into the house of the prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them, on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you went out, before you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. 
And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. So, continuing on um, to Joshua six twenty-one through 25. Give some people some time to find it in their Bible. <laughs> then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. That's an incredible story, isn't it? Have you guys ever seen The Lion King, the old 1994 version? Come on, even if you don't have kids or grandkids, it's all right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Great movie. One of my favorite scenes is in the very beginning when King Mufasa, is that James Earl Jones? Man, that's perfect. When Mufasa is talking to his son, and he says, Son, do you see everywhere that the light touches belongs to us? And then, of course, like any kid would do, what does Simba say? He says, what about that dark, shadowy place over there? Right? And his, his father, Mufasa, says, that's beyond our borders. You must never go there. To which Simba goes anyway, right? Listen, guys, I think that a lot of people believe that there are places and there are people that are like that dark, shadowy place that's beyond the borders of, of hope. That God doesn't go there. God can't help those people. I think Jericho was like that in the Old Testament. And to be honest with you, I don't want to offend anybody, but the way people talk, about southwest Volusia County, it's almost like it's that dark, shadowy place that you must never go. There's a lot of brokenness there. There's a lot of hopelessness there. There's a lot of sin there, crime there. But is that true? Is, that, is, is any place beyond the borders of God's hope? No. And look at this story, Jericho. You know what's interesting to me? Rahab, the prostitute. That's that's said over four different times. Rahab the prostitute. Why does God say that over and over in this story? What is he trying to tell us? This is an outsider. Every possible way you can be an outsider. During that time, she was a woman. Okay? Just keeping it real. In that time, women couldn't even come into a certain part in the temple in, the, in Israel. She was a woman. She was a Canaanite. She was an idolater. She was a prostitute. All those marks were against her. I mean, she was about as outside as you can get. There were people that were far superior morally to her inside that city. But God chose Rahab to transform her into a trophy of his grace. That's really interesting to me that those spies went to her house. And you heard her confession in the, in the, in the middle of that story. By the way, this is the most important part of this story. But if you're just reading the Old Testament, you wouldn't even think it's necessary. It's like a parenthetical, why is this here? God promised Israel the promised land. They come, they attack Jerusalem, they devote it to, to destruction, and then it belongs to them. Why is this story even necessary? 
because God is trying to show us something about his character. He's not a bloodthirsty, misogynistic, uh, sadomasochistical, all those other words. God is a God of mercy and compassion and hope. And Rahab knew that. How did she know that? Because she had heard. She said, we have heard of the mighty deeds that God has done. You know, God rescued some Egyptians too. I'm sure she heard that. When those spies heard her begging for mercy, they didn't say, you know what, let us check with Joshua because this is so unorthodox. No, they knew, of course. Of course God will show you mercy. Mark your house, anyone in your house. It wasn't just Rahab. It was her, her father, her mother, her relatives. We don't know how many people, but God saved that entire family. A family of outsiders, strangers to God's grace. Why did he do that? Because that's his nature. God is by nature a savior. He did that for her. He's done that to all of us. All of us were outsiders. Most of the people under this canopy are Gentiles, I would imagine. You realize uh, in the Old Testament, we didn't have a whole lot of hope. But there was few stories like Jonah going to Nineveh. He, God saved the entire city. The sailors in the boat with Jonah, he saved them. Ruth, the Moabitess, he saved her. Rahab, the Canaanite, he saved her. You cannot read the Old Testament and say that God is just a bloodthirsty, uh, has no mercy, has no compassion. It's not true. He shows us, here's Rahab, and as outside as you can get, and she becomes an insider. In fact, you might think, yeah, maybe they just put her in a tent outside the camp. No, that last part, did you hear? She dwells in Israel to this day. In fact, I want to tell you the best part of this story. Here's the best part of the story. Check this out. Matthew chapter 1 says something really radical about Rahab. And if you read, if you read through it really fast, you'll miss it. You know the part of the story of Jesus Christ that most people skip or read through really fast is his genealogy. How many people know what a genealogy is? It's your ancestry path, right? It's interesting. Today, more and more people are digging into their ancestry to see what kind of stock they come from. And they're finding some interesting things that disturb them. It's like, oh my goodness, my grandfather was this, my grandmother was that. Uh, as important as genealogy is to us back then, it was like way up here. Your genealogy was your resume. You would say, hey, I'm Tommy, I'm the great-grandson of David, I'm the son of, you know, Rehoboam or whatever. That would be proof that you're important, that you're worthy. So to a Jew, genealogy was everything. In fact, it was so important that some people did a little cosmetic surgery on their genealogies, and they cooked the books a little bit. Herod did that. In fact, did you know that Ben Affleck, the famous celebrity actor, back in 2015, he did a show on PBS called Go to Your Roots, and they were digging in his past and found out something really racist about his grandfather, and it scared Ben Affleck so bad, he said, please don't air this on PBS. I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed of my ancestors. He said, please don't do this. Um, well, there's a lot of people that would feel the same way about their ancestry. But listen, here's what's interesting. If you read the genealogy, it's the family tree of Jesus. It says this one begat this one begat this one. Some of the most notorious sinners are in his family's history. Jesus didn't cook the books. He's not ashamed to be identified with sinners who need grace. And I want to read... Just a little part of that genealogy to you. And I want you to listen carefully for somebody's name we've been talking about, okay? You ready? Here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. We're getting there. Hang on. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. There are some pretty, dirty, shady, edgy, racy characters in this list. There's a bunch of them. There's incestuous relationships, there's murderers, there's tricksters, there's deceivers, and guess what? There's a harlot, there's a prostitute. I know we got little ears in here today. That just means somebody that sells their body for money. Somebody that does really sinful things that they shouldn't. And yet God is not ashamed, the Bible says, to be called brothers and sisters of people who have been redeemed from that. You know, when the Bible mentions Rahab in the New Testament, it never mentions her past. Does that give you hope? It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what your resume is. It doesn't matter if you lived the past ten years of your life right outside the gates of hell. It doesn't matter if you've been a pedophile, if you've been hooked on pornography. It doesn't matter, guys. It doesn't matter if you've had multiple abortions, if you've been a mafia hitman. It doesn't matter. Nobody, nobody, that's the message here, nobody is beyond the scope of God's grace. You're not outside the boundaries. You're not too far outside the boundaries of what God can do to rescue you. That's what this tells us. She was an outsider. She was a harlot. She was a Canaanite. And yet God redeemed her. And if you look around today, guys, just do that for a minute. Look around this canopy. Every single person in this room has a past, don't they? Some of us got skeletons in our closet. We don't want to talk about it. God redeemed us from that. Praise God. He redeemed us from it. But listen, he is not ashamed to identify with us. He's not. You know what this genie, if we could just, I could just preach a sermon on the genealogy. You know what it tells us? There's nobody so sinful that they're beyond receiving God's grace. But there's also nobody, King David is in this list, there's also nobody so great that they don't need God's grace. Aren't you thankful that in heaven it's going to be a round table like King Arthur's court, right? And, and, and kings and prostitutes who have been redeemed are going to sit together. There's no longer any Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, Scythian. We're all redeemed and we're all standing on equal ground when it comes to the cross because we all equally need God's grace. Amen? And God supplies it abundantly. That's what this story is really all about. From the Old Testament and even from the New Testament. So look, when you come and you read the Bible, don't think that you're coming to read some nice, neat, tidy, moral stories about all these heroes that we so often hear about. All those heroes are men and women with clay feet. In fact, the moral of this story is that morals don't save you. Listen, children, I want to talk to you specifically. The best possible behavior you could ever offer to God is not going to be enough. You don't need morality to save you. You need Jesus to save you. Jesus offers us his perfect record. Was Rahab spared the judgment of God because she was a good person or because she did something good? No. She was spared because she acknowledged that God was her Savior. She needed to be rescued. She deserved the judgment just like all the rest of Jericho did and just like we do. We are all sinners by nature, we're sinners by birth, and we're sinners by choice. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What we need 
is somebody to stand in our place and take the wrath of God on our behalf. And man, that's so offensive to people to hear that. That's, listen, that's what Christianity is, though. The people that say, let's just talk about the love of God and never mention judgment, but then that's cheap grace. The love of God is, is so much more valuable and precious to us because we know what it costs Him. The love of God costs Him the cross. See, Jesus came to reach outsiders. He went outside the city. He hung on the cross. The people that talk about, wasn't Jesus ashamed of all these dirty characters in His uh, family history? Listen, there's nothing more shameful than hanging naked and bloody on a cross, being rejected by God, becoming a curse. That's the most shameful, offensive thing that you could ever experience. And, and Jesus did that for us. He lived the perfect life that none of us could ever live. And He offers it to all of us. Children, You could the best possible ten minutes of your life that you could offer to God wouldn't be enough. The best day you could offer wouldn't be enough. But Jesus Christ offers us a perfect life. Thirty-three years, He was the spotless Lamb of God. He never sinned in word. He never sinned in thought. He never sinned in deed. He was pure without sin. And he offers us his life and he trades it for our life that deserves God's wrath. And he took the punishment that we deserve. And he rescued outsiders. Isn't that good news? That's the best news that a person could ever hear. And that's why we're here. We're all outlaws. Everybody in this room has been an outlaw, okay? But Jesus wants us in his family. He wants us at the table. He wants to rejoice and sing over us. The Bible says he redeems us. He makes us his children. We're a kingdom of, king, of kings and priests. We're seated in the heavenly places with Him, all because of Christ. Our identity is not who we were. It's who we are in Jesus. That's the best news in the world. So that's why we're celebrating today. That's why we're going to eat hot dogs and hamburgers and play games and enjoy the bounce house and get some desserts. Um, and, and that's our mission here. We're going to continually reach outsiders because that's God's heart and that's our heart.